Today is Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of the week that resulted in the sufferings and the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The New Testament tells us that he entered into Jerusalem on that first day of the week to the shouts of praise, to the loud hosannas from the people, and they cut down palm branches from trees and laid them in the pathway of the donkey he was riding. Despite the celebratory nature of that day, Jesus knew what lay ahead of him. He was fully aware of what this week would entail. He knew that this week would result in his execution as he came to fulfill the very purpose for which his father had sent him into the world. Jesus came into the world to save his people from their sins. And the only way that sinners can be saved from sin is by his substituting his own life for ours. His taking the wrath of God upon himself that we deserve in order to pay for our sins. By trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive the benefits of all of his sufferings and death. Everything that he accomplished in his crucifixion is credited to the person who trusts him as Lord. As the prophet Isaiah says, it's by his stripes we are healed. We're healed of our sin. We're healed of our separation from God. And we are brought into a right relationship with the one who created us. Through faith, we enter into a life of discipleship, following Jesus Christ, living on the basis of what he has done for us. And just as our Lord suffered, so will his people suffer. Sometimes people portray the Christian life as a life of ease. Once you come to Jesus, then all will be health and wealth and prosperity. Or as Joel Osteen puts it, it will be your best life now. That's simply not true. It's a lie. God's people suffer in this world. Just like everyone else, we will have trials. We will have sorrows. Sometimes Christians suffer because we are Christians. Like our Lord, we follow him and we obey him. We seek to live according to his will. And that results in opposition and persecution coming against us because we will refuse to bow to the idols and pressures of this world to stay true to Christ. And when that happens, we are suffering for Christ. But most of the suffering that Christians experience in this world is not because we are Christians. Rather, it's because we're living in a fallen world. It's because we're living in a world that is not the way it was designed to be. So for most suffering in your life as a believer, though it is not for Christ, you can nevertheless recognize that as a believer, you still are suffering in Christ. You are suffering with Christ. The reality of our relationship with Jesus Christ through faith enables us to endure our sufferings differently from those who do not know Christ. 
in our ongoing study of the book of Revelation, of Romans, we come to a verse where the Apostle Paul makes this very point. And it's one of the most profound statements on suffering that we have anywhere in the Bible. The verse I'm referring to is Romans chapter 8, verse 18. That is our text for the study this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles that's found in our chairs in front of you, you'll find this on page 944, 944. And I want you to get the text in front of you because I, I want us to just look at it this morning, meditate on it, and see what it is that God is saying to us through this portion of his word. So that we can gain some of the context, I want to start reading from Romans chapter 8 in verse 16, and we're going to read all the way down through verse 25, where he brings this section to a close. In verse 16 of Romans 8, we read, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us, or to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God." For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. For Christians, the life that we live now of temporary sufferings will give way to a life of surpassing glory forever. Suffering now, yes, but in Christ, suffering now leads to glory forever. That's the point that the Apostle Paul makes in verse 18 as he connects our experience in the world now with our experience in the world to come, which will be glory. As he puts it, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul knows that Christians will suffer. In fact, in verse 17, he has made the point that the very pathway to glory is the pathway here and now of suffering. He says, we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Everyone suffers in this world. That is the inevitable consequence of living in a sinful world. God's good creation has been corrupted, making work difficult, making relationships stressful, making our bodies corruptible. We see death and decay all around us, and we experience it within us. Christians, however, experience these things and suffer differently than other people do. We suffer in hope. 
we know that in our suffering now, we will see ultimately everlasting glory in the future. That is because of what we see in our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself suffered, bled, died, and then on the third day was raised from the dead by God with a glorified body, never to die again. And through faith in Christ, we are joint heirs with him. So that what he has experienced before us, we also will receive and experience in him. Well, let's look at our text, verse 18 of Romans 8, and see what Paul tells us about suffering and glory. And the first thing I want to do is just ask, what does he mean by these two terms, suffering and glory? Well, sufferings, as I mentioned earlier, can be considered two ways as it comes into the life of a Christian. You can suffer for Christ. That is, you take your stand for Christ and the opposition and persecution that comes to you as a result of your stand is suffering for him as his disciple. This is what God told Paul would happen to him. When Paul was converted on the road to Damascus and Ananias was called by God to go and speak to him in Acts chapter 9 verse 16, Ananias was told by God, I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. And of course, if you know the life of Paul at all in the New Testament, you see how this was fulfilled in his life. This is what's happened with Pastor Wang Yi in China, who for going on three years now has been in prison because he refused to bow to the communist Chinese government and continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's what happened to James Coates over the last several weeks, having just been released on Monday in Alberta, Canada, because he refused to say, no, the church must close because the government told us we cannot meet. They suffered for Christ. And brothers and sisters, we should be willing to suffer in this way. We should be willing to take our stand under the lordship of Christ, on the authority of God's word, come what may, and be willing to entrust our souls to him if opposition or persecution comes. But as I said, that's not the way most Christians are going to suffer most of the time. Because there's not only suffering for Christ, they're suffering in Christ, with Christ. This includes all the suffering you experience. This includes sickness, car accidents, cancer, loss of your job, loss of loved ones. Not all the suffering you experience as a Christian is because you're a Christian, but it is all in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we're called to suffer differently. We can endure suffering in ways that unbelievers simply cannot in the final analysis, the distinction between suffering for Christ or suffering in Christ is not all that crucial. You see, it really doesn't matter if your ribs are broken by a baseball bat wielded by the hands of somebody who's telling you to quit preaching the gospel or if your ribs are broken in a car accident by somebody who missed a stop sign. Your ribs are still broken. And you'll still have many of the same consequences and many of the same suffering. But no matter how suffering comes to us, Christians are called upon and we are supplied with resources to suffer differently than unbelievers. There's a distinctively Christian way to suffer. 
Well, in order to do this, we must learn to think about suffering in the light of eternity. You know, God repeatedly calls us in the scriptures to take an eternal perspective on our lives. To remember that this world that we're living now, that we're so familiar with, is not all that there is. You and I have been made for eternity. We will not live on this earth as it now is forever. There are eternal realities that transcend the grave. And as a Christian, the day of your death is not your final day of existence. For the Christian, the day of death is the day of graduation. It's the day of entering into the glory that awaits us in Jesus Christ. We enter into the very presence of the Lord whose blood has purchased our salvation. The day of death for the Christian is the beginning of eternal reward. This truth, this fact needs to be kept in mind as we go through our daily lives. It is particularly important when you experience sorrow and suffering. Well, what does Paul mean by glory? Well, if we look at the context a little more broadly, we can see some of his meaning here. In verse 17, he speaks of being glorified together with Christ, referring to Christ's glorification that's already taken place. If you look down at verse 29, he mentions being glorified as the last Step, the last phase of our multifaceted salvation. So this suggests that what he has in mind in verse 18 is this glory which is to be revealed in us is a reference to all that believers will experience at the consummation, at the completion, at the perfection of our salvation. On that day when Jesus himself returns to the earth and all his disciples are resurrected with new bodies to live with him forever. This is what Paul has in mind when he refers to glory. So Paul wants us to take an eternal perspective on suffering. He calls us to think of suffering in terms of glory. That's an interesting link that he makes between suffering and glory. And if we don't factor glory into the sufferings that we experience then we will miss one of God's primary ways of encouraging us to persevere through painful, difficult days. So what are the connections between suffering and glory? Well, I see at least four of them that I want to call to your attention in verse 18. The relationship between suffering and glory. In our text, let me remind you, when Paul speaks of suffering, he's not thinking about suffering that is primarily because you're a Christian. He's thinking about all kinds of suffering. The context makes this clear. If you just look at verses 19 through 23, we read all creation is suffering. Why? Because of sin. If you look at verse 28, all things work together, including things that are not related to our standing for Christ. And then if you look at verses 38 and 39, where he lists out how Nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God in Christ. He's, he's talking about everything. So Paul has in mind here all suffering that a Christian experiences. He's talking about pain. He's talking about poverty. He's talking about your sickness, your disappointments, your loss of loved ones. So let's look at the four connections that we see in this verse between suffering and glory. First is simple. Suffering and glory go together. They do go together. It seems like a strange connection. Suffering speaks of trials. It speaks of difficulties and sorrows. Glory speaks of bliss and joy and delight. 
And yet, the New Testament regularly links them together. We could look at several verses. Let me just give you a sample of how the New Testament links suffering and glory together. We've already seen it in verse 17. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure, that's suffering, endure suffering, we will also reign with him. That's glory. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Well, why does Paul bring up the subject of suffering at this point in his letter? I mean, look at it. He's just made some astounding claims about the blessings that belong to those who are in Christ. In verses 14 through 17, he speaks of how we're adopted and what's awaiting us. And then in verse 18, he makes this statement about suffering. Why? Well, I think there are at least two reasons that Paul mentions suffering in the midst of all of the blessings that we have as Christians. The first is Paul was a realist. Paul understood this world. He understood life as it really is. And he knew that suffering is an inevitable part of living in a fallen world. And then secondly, Paul had a pastor's heart. He wanted to prepare this people reading this letter for what inevitably would lay ahead of them. They are going to experience trials. They're going to experience difficulties. Brothers and sisters, we're going to suffer in this world. Our Lord himself was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He warned us that no disciple is above his master. And he promised us, in this world, you will have tribulations. Despite this, sometimes as Christians, we're still caught off guard by suffering and sorrow. In one sense, that's understandable. You think about it because when you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, you're given a new life. You're given God. Your sins are forgiven. You have peace with your Creator. You experience joy that cannot be attained any other way. Your, new, your inner life begins to be transformed. And so... Trials and sorrows seem so incompatible with what God has done for you and what God gives us in Christ. Well, if you let yourself think that way, oh, I'm a Christian and God is my father and so nothing bad's going to happen to me. When trials do come, those trials can become a great temptation for your downfall. Because the devil loves to take advantage of wrong thinking. He will come. Try to make you believe that. Christianity is not true at all. I mean admit it. You've tried it. And this happens to you. Is this the way God treats the people. That he favors. If you're really a child of God. You think this would happen to you. This whole Jesus stuff is just a hoax. Or if he can't convince you that Christianity is not true, he'll try to convince you that it's not for you. You're not a Christian. How could you be a Christian? Really? You think 
that God would let this happen to one of his chosen people. You're kidding yourself. You don't really know God. That's why you're suffering. Paul wants to equip us to withstand these kinds of spiritual attacks. So at the very height of extolling the blessings of our great salvation, the fact that we are sons of God, brought into His very family by the Spirit, enabled to call Him Abba, Father, the coming glorification that is ours, he mentions suffering. Why? Because glory and suffering go together. And we should think of them together. Well, not only that connection, but we see a second connection in that sufferings and glory characterize two ages. Do you see how Paul in verse 18 is speaking of both the present and the future? The present age is characterized by suffering. He says, this present time. Because of sin, suffering is the common common lot of all mankind. The age to come is characterized by glory. He says, it is to be revealed. He's pointing to the future. Already we have a foretaste of this glory. We experience it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says in verse 23. We ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemptions of our body, the full consummation the glory of our salvation. But the full revelation of this glory is reserved for the age to come. This is what Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 when he speaks of that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. This present time is characterized by suffering and not Primarily because of opposition and persecution, but because we're in a fallen world. People lie. People cheat. People steal. Things break. Cancer robs us of health. Upheavals in nature, like tornadoes and hurricanes, destroy and kill. But there's another day coming. There is the day of the Lord when Jesus will appear and bring history to an end. And that day will usher in eternity. And for the person who is trusting Jesus Christ on that day, it will mark the dawning of the full glory of heaven and the new heavens and the new earth. By faith, Christians already have caught a glimpse of that glory and the salvation that we enjoy But when Jesus comes, our faith will be completely translated into sight. And we, with newly resurrected bodies, will begin to experience the full revelation of all that God has in store of us. So a Christian really is a person of two worlds. We live here, and we live eternally in the future. We also know what is to come, as well as honestly assessing what already is. 
You see how Paul, how Peter puts this together in his description of Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1. Let me read it to you. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, future, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, future, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, future, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This glory is already being revealed, but it's not fully revealed until the last time. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Brothers and sisters, never lose sight of this two-world perspective. The world we have now and the world that is to come. That world that is to come is a glorious world. The world that we live in now is marked by suffering. So suffering and glory go together. They represent, characterize two different ages. Thirdly, sufferings and glory cannot be equally compared. I mean, this is the point of Paul's statement here. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Our present sufferings, when compared to our future glory, are too insignificant to be mentioned. That's what Paul's saying. Now, this is an amazing statement if you just simply take him at his word. Why is that true? How can it be true? It's not true because our present sufferings here are too little. Paul's not taking a superficial view of life. He's not putting on rose-colored glasses and saying, oh, things really aren't all that bad. Paul understood difficulty. When he writes this letter, he'd already experienced a great deal of suffering. His life reads like a resume of suffering. In fact, you might say that 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29 is something of Paul's resume. As he recounts the various things that he had endured, he says there, he had been beaten, whipped. He'd been imprisoned multiple times. His life had been threatened more than any other apostle. Five times he said his back was ripped to shreds with 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. He was stoned. He was left for dead. He was shipwrecked three times. He was lost at sea for a day and night. He survived an assassination attempt. He often went without food and sleep and even clothing. To say nothing of the emotional suffering that he endured as he watched people walk away from the faith as he watched friends betray him, turn their back on him, as he watched Christians be abused and persecuted. Paul never discounts the sorrows, the horrors, the sufferings of this life. And you who are suffering today must not dismiss his point as irrelevant because you think he really doesn't understand what you're going through. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing to our future glory. Not because they're so little. But because our future glory is so great. It's so incredible. This is Paul's point. All that God has provided for us in salvation through Jesus is so overwhelmingly great and glorious that if we could but see it, 
we wouldn't begin to complain about those things that make us suffer here and now. But what's included in this future glory? Well, more than we can say. But there are at least three components that are revealed to us in Scripture that we ought to take to heart. Future glory will involve a perfect body. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says when Jesus appears, our lowly body will be transformed and made like the glorious body of Christ. Is your body bothering you? (laughs) Breaking down on you? Not doing what it used to do? Creating difficulties in your work schedule, your sleep? The day's coming when you'll have a glorious new body like Jesus. Secondly, we will have a transformed mind. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. You'll have complete understanding of all that you need to know. No more doubts, no more misunderstandings in your thinking. More than that, our future glory will include perfect holiness. In 1 John 3, 2, John says, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. We'll see him as he is. Think about this. No more sinful affections. No more desiring things that you know you shouldn't desire. No more sinful thoughts or attitudes. No more sinful words coming across your lips. No more sinful deeds. No more guilty conscience. No wonder Paul writes what he does in 1 Corinthians 2.9. That eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, nor has the heart of man conceived that which God has prepared for those who love Him. No matter how good our grasp is on future glory, it's greater than what we can conceive. The hymn writer John Newton helps us to understand this when he writes, Suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate, and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we would think him to be if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile, My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. He's about to receive a great inheritance. And all he can focus on is the difficulties that he has now. This is how Paul wants us to think, brothers and sisters, about the exceeding greatness of the glory that awaits us when we compare it to the present trials that afflict us now. Yes, our sufferings are real. Yes, they're painful. Yes, we will weep. Yes, we will grieve. But we do all of these things. We suffer in hope because we know that these present trials cannot begin to compare to the glory that we will experience in eternity. Well, not only do we see glory and suffering going together, not only do we see that they represent, they characterize two different ages, not only do we see that they, the glory is so much greater than the suffering that we can't really compare the two, but the fourth connection is that future glory transforms present sufferings. This is more immediately significant to us as living here and now. 
There is a transforming power that the believer's future glory has over his present trials. Think of it this way. What kind of statement is verse 18? I mean, just as Paul writes it, what kind of statement is it? He says, I consider. You know, it's like we might say, you know, I, I reckon that heaven's going to be better than earth. I mean, he's using an understatement in order to underscore the significant importance of what he's about to say. I'm convinced. I'm completely certain. Well, on what is his conviction based? Is it based upon empirical data? I mean, Paul had some incredible experiences. He was caught up into the third heaven. He saw the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. He had divine revelation given to him. But Paul never experienced the full weight of glory that he speaks of. This glory will not be fully revealed until the return of Jesus. So Paul hadn't experienced the glory that he writes about. He hadn't personally experienced all that is awaiting us. So it's not like he was in a, a position to say, you know what, I've experienced full glory, I've experienced full suffering, and I'm here to tell you full glory is better than full suffering. No, he is speaking out of conviction that is born of faith. He's taking God at his word. He's believing the things that have been revealed. This is crucial for us to see because it teaches us that faith is the means by which future glory transforms present sufferings. We see this operating in the way that Paul actually speaks verse 18. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us or to us. Our future glory is greater than our sufferings. And believing this unleashes the transforming power that the future has over our present lives, including our present sufferings and sorrows. This is what enables Paul to say what he does here, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. That judgment, that unusual perspective on his life-threatening sufferings comes through faith in God's promises regarding the future. Through faith, future glory transforms our present sorrows. Now Paul draws this out in greater detail in the book of 2 Corinthians, especially 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In that chapter, Paul describes some of the sufferings that he's endured in verses 7 through 12. He says he was afflicted. He was perplexed. He was persecuted. He said, I was always being given over to death. Earlier in that book, in chapter 1, he describes an experience that he had in Asia that he said was beyond his ability to bear. That he thought he was going to die. In fact, the language suggests that maybe he wanted to die. But then... When we come to the end of chapter 4, he's listed his sufferings. He's elaborated some of the impact they had on him. And he makes this astounding claim. Listen to this in 2 Corinthians four sixteen. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There are two ways that future glory works to transform our present sufferings. First, in the light of eternity, our sufferings become light, momentary. How? Not because they lose their significance, but because the greatness of the glory that awaits us outweighs their significance. But secondly, future glory makes our present sufferings actually work for us. Our light momentary afflictions, Paul says, actually prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. How does this work? How does it work? How do you experience what Paul did? How can you have the future glory that awaits you in Christ work here and now in your present sufferings to prepare you to make those future blessings even greater? Verse 18 tells us how. He says this happens, preparing us for eternal glory happens as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. He's not saying that you close your eyes to the present causes of sorrow and suffering. No. They're real. But they're not the only things that, were, that are real. You face the reality here, but you also face the reality eternally. How? By faith. You take God at His word. You believe that what he says is true. The promises that he has given to us will be fulfilled. In other words, as by faith we lay hold of the promises of eternal glory that God has given us in Christ, we do not lose heart. And we actually experience inward renewal. We know that God is working our present hardships for our eternal benefit. Future glory enlists our present sorrows and sufferings in order to serve it. Because of Jesus Christ, all that he's accomplished and all that we have promised to us in him, our sufferings in this life are actually working right now for an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. So brothers and sisters, what this means is that there's no wasted pain in your life. God is working through your sufferings and your sorrows. All of them are designed by him to work in you to prepare you for the incomparable weight of glory that will be revealed in the age to come. Our Savior suffered for us. And because of that, we can be sure that our temporary suffering now will give way to a life of surpassing glory forever. Now I look out on this congregation and and I see your stories and there's suffering everywhere. There's, there's sorrows. Some of you live with them day by day. You'll live with them the rest of your life. And some of you are newly engaged in some. And there's some that can't even be here with us today who are suffering, watching loved ones die. What's our hope? How do we live? Not for pretending that the sufferings aren't real, but by 
engaging those sufferings in the light of eternity and believing that what God says that he has for us, what's in store for us in Christ because of what Jesus has already done, these sufferings will ultimately result in us experiencing a greater eternal weight of glory. Jesus Christ is the one who has come and brought all of these realities to pass. He's walked the path of suffering before us. In Him, we can be sure that there's no suffering, no sorrow in this life that will overthrow us. So trust Him. If you've never trusted Him before, trust Him now. He will accept you. He will lead you. He will walk with you. And He will enable you to endure your sorrows day by day as you wait for that coming day of eternal glory. Hear this word of comfort and exhortation from the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the ways that you speak to us in scripture. And we ask that you would help us to take you at your word, to believe you. We pray that you'd forgive us of our unbelief and that you would strengthen us in faith. I ask you to create faith in the hearts and minds of those who walked in the doors today, unbelieving, that you would cause them to see and to believe Jesus Christ, to trust him, to entrust all their sorrows and sufferings to him, and to come to experience this surpassing greatness of that which awaits us when compared to that which we have and endure here. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.